Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Amy Foster, and it's my joy to serve on your teaching team, and it's just my great privilege and pleasure to be with you every week studying the Word of God. So thanks for being here today. I'm gonna ask you a question, but you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to. I don't wanna out anybody here, but um, I'm wondering if very many of you like to watch reality TV. And you know, this came about maybe 10 or 12 years ago and we thought it would have a short lifespan, but it's still around because a lot of people like it. And I think what people like is it's just human nature on display, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's something about watching that that intrigues many of us. Um, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but as we are reading Paul's letter to Timothy, it's as if Paul has been watching reality TV and he's been watching the real church at Ephesus. And what we see here is that there's some drama in the church, drama that comes from human nature. There's damaging leadership. And Paul is responding to that. He's instructing Timothy and how to respond, how to be a good leader, but he calls a good leader a good servant of Jesus and a good servant of the church. So I think if this were a reality TV show, we would call today's episodes Real Leaders at Ephesus, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So before we start looking at this passage, I want us to talk for a minute about leadership. Um, what, what is a leader? A leader is someone who goes before or with, a leader shows the way, a leader will influence or induce. Those all sound kind of positive, but other versions say a leader can lead on, a leader can lure, and a leader can tempt. And those sound kind of negative. So in short, leaders are people who move other people from one place to another, or they move people from one position to another, and there's lots of traits and characteristics associated with leadership, but in truth, there's really only one thing required to be a leader, and that's a follower. If you think about it, you can have people out front saying, hey, come with me, follow me, do as I say. If nobody gets behind them, they are not a leader. It takes people following to make a leader. And actually, all it takes is one person following. And that's what's happening in Ephesus. We've got some leaders who don't have authority and they don't have credibility, but they're out front and they're saying, follow me, and people are following them. So open your Bibles. We're gonna read from 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse one. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. All right, so what we see right away, Paul is talking about liars or false teachers that are plaguing the church, and immediately he says, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised, Timothy, and I don't want you to be surprised either, because the Spirit of God had told Paul this was coming. And actually, Paul had warned the leaders of the church at Ephesus. You may remember at the end of his missionary journeys, as he's traveling back to Jerusalem and he knows that his arrest is coming, he stops and has this heartfelt encounter with the leaders of his friends who lead the church in Ephesus. And this is what he said to them. 
time. You'll find this on your verse sheet in Acts 20, 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul's not surprised. He knew this was coming. Jesus warned of the same thing. There's a passage in Mark 13 where Jesus says false prophets, false teachers are going to come and lead people astray. And Paul says this will happen in later times. So later times doesn't mean the end of the world. It doesn't mean the time when Jesus is returning. That's an interesting combination of words there. Later times means the period of time between Jesus' first coming his life, his death, his resurrection, and his second coming. So we know that the first church, the first century in Ephesus here, they lived during those times. But we also have to stop and consider, we live during those times. When Paul writes about false teachers will come in later times, he is writing about our time as well. False teachers will come. And then he says, some will depart from the faith, or maybe your translation says withdraw from the faith. Now we have to stop and take a moment to look at that because we know that once we place our faith in Jesus, that position is secured forever. And our eternal position is secured forever. We can't lose it. And Jesus assures us of that. He says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So if Jesus says you can't lose your salvation, you can't lose this promised eternal life, what does it mean to depart from the faith? And the context of this passage doesn't tell us exactly who Paul is talking about, but from the whole of the Bible, we really know there are only two options here, and both are possibilities, and and maybe both things are happening. The first possibility is that a person departing from their faith, this might be a true believer. This might be someone who had a true moment of putting their faith in Jesus and their salvation is secured, but after that, they choose not to follow God's new spirit in them, but they choose to follow their own sinful spirit, and they actually never mature spiritually. In other writings, Paul will call them carnal Christians or fleshly Christians, and these people choose to remove themselves from the truth of the gospel, to remove themselves from the life of faith, and they never mature, and perhaps they never experience the benefit Um, of the Spirit of God living in them. They never demonstrate peace, joy, love, patience, goodness, kindness. They don't grow into mature followers of Christ, but their salvation is secured. Now, a second possibility is a true non-Christian, a true non-believer. This is someone who has professed with their mouth faith in Christ but that faith is not authentic or genuine in their heart and in their mind. And we don't have the ability to know who these people are, but Jesus does. He can discern a man's heart. And we know, again, from the scriptures, the reality that Jesus says there'll be a day when he'll look at those people and he'll say, I never knew you. You claim me with your mouth, but I never knew you. So either one of those are possibilities for what's happening in the church of Ephesus. From those two groups of people, some are moving away from the faith and the teaching of the gospel and the truth. 
So let's talk for just a minute about who are these false teachers in the church. Um, And remember in Acts, Paul called them fierce wolves from within. We don't know if they're true believers or not, but we know one thing right off the bat because Paul is very direct and clear here, they are liars. They are liars, and when we see that word liar, we know these aren't people who are in error. These aren't people who are ignorant or uninformed. These are people who know the truth, and they are deliberately teaching something contrary to the truth, and that's a very important distinction. They're uh, deliberately misleading people from the truth. It also tells us that their conscience is seared, or another word was cauterized, or some Bibles even would say callous. And what that means is they're repetitive lying, they're repetitive deceiving both themselves and other people has got them to a place where they don't even recognize that they're lying anymore. Their conscience is so seared. And I think whenever we read those words, we just have to stop and think, wow, there's a caution for all of us there because we all have the tendency to want to persist in our own sin and tell ourselves it isn't sin. And this tells us that that's a dangerous pattern to start because we're all vulnerable to getting to the place where we have seared our conscience and we no longer recognize the truth. So they're liars and their consciences are seared. And it also says they have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Devoted means they've been listening to, they've been influenced by, they're entertaining thoughts and ideas that come from these spirits. Um, There is a reality that we don't see, but the reality is there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God made up of Jesus and all his followers, and there's the kingdom of the world that is ruled by Satan, and those kingdoms are opposed to each other. And the reality that we don't always see, but we experience is that Satan always opposes God and his church. And Paul is showing us here that Satan can influence a believer. He can influence their beliefs and their behavior. And after he's influenced someone, he can use them as a tool to influence everyone else. So that's very succinctly showing us who these false teachers are. And then also very succinctly, Paul shows us what are they doing in Ephesus to lead people astray. Well, they're adding man-made laws to the truth of the gospel, the truth that Jesus Christ is the one who saves us, and the truth that the church is supposed to uphold and proclaim. They're saying you must remain unmarried and you must abstain from certain foods. And they're saying that that is absolutely essential. That's a command. So to be spiritually pure, you must do these things. Um, These ideas would grow and develop and they would later be called Gnosticism. And Gnostics believe that anything spiritual is good and anything physical or material is evil. So they believe you should abstain from anything physical like marriage or eating foods. Um, And they're actually doing something else. They're kind of creating a hierarchy of spiritual maturity. They're sort of saying there are steps you can climb all by yourself that make you sort of a super Christian. And those steps all involved asceticism, or they involved restricting physical things from your life so that you make yourself an even better Christian. Um, Paul immediately refutes that with a reminder that comes straight from the first words in Genesis, everything God made is good. 
Everything God made is good. God made marriage and he said it was good. God made physical things, God made food and he said it was good. Um, all these material things were created by God to be enjoyed and to be stewarded by man. He's telling us material things are not evil, but it's only when the evil intent of our heart misuses those spiritual things, doesn't use them appropriately, that's when they become evil. Um, we know that dietary restrictions were part of the Jewish custom and the Jewish law, but we also know that Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, and he said those things are no longer unclean. They are now clean. So this idea that you have to remove yourself from all of these things is not a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This same teaching had actually sprung up about 100 miles away, and Paul addressed it in another church. You'll see this verse on your verse sheet, Colossians 2.16. Look at that with me. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. So he's very quickly telling them here, you're supposed to receive God's good gifts with gratitude, with thanksgiving. You're supposed to um, receive them and use them appropriately, knowing they came from God. You are not to use these things to distort the gospel. Because in short, the gospel is Jesus Christ saves sinners, period. Nothing else. We don't follow laws and we don't do man-made tasks to save ourselves. That's all a part of the different doctrines and the myths that's causing so much division and confusion and distortion in the young church right there. So here's the real picture of the church at Ephesus. There are false teachers, they are liars, they're influenced by Satan himself, they're perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're causing people to fall away from the faith, they're causing confusion and disorder and pride among God's church. And you just look at that list and it's quite obvious, bad outcomes bad, bad things they're causing. You would say that's bad fruit from a bad tree. And the idea that the church is called to hold up the gospel and guard it and protect it and proclaim it, how can that happen when all those things are happening to distort it? So these false problems are, false teachers are a very real problem and they are bad leaders, but people are following them. But Paul quickly says all is not lost because God has a plan to counter these bad leaders and God's plan is good leaders. Good leaders, good servants, demonstrating good leadership, following God's direction and his plan. That would be the solution to this problem. So Paul is going to begin to describe this good leader, but he's gonna call him a servant. All through it, the leader is called a servant here. And he's going to begin describing him by telling you what he's like in his inner man, in his heart. So begin reading with me in verse six. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. 
So he starts right out um, describing the good servant and the good leader. And in short, he's really describing here the role of the pastor in a church. And that's why we call this a pastoral epistle. But Paul's intent was never for this just to be read by pastors. You know, all along he wanted these letters circulated among the different churches and read everywhere. So we know by that, Paul has something in this for all of us, even those who aren't pastors. So resist the temptation to disengage right here and think, oh, pastors have to do these things, but I don't. Um, what we'll see throughout this description is that Paul will describe the character and behavior of a good pastor, and he will regularly refer to their good example. So I want you to stop for a minute and think, what is the purpose of an example? An example is put before us so we will follow it, right? So the words and the instructions here for the life of the pastor are also words and instructions for any of us who want to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Examples are given for us to follow. So he's gonna begin with who is the good servant, and the good servant is gonna have to do two things. He'll have to both defend sound doctrine, and he will have to expose false doctrine, and that's difficult, but Paul says he can do it, and he can do it beginning with because of who he is in his inner man, who is true, what his true identity is, where his hope is truly set. So he begins with who he is, and he begins by saying he's trained, but not just in the past tense. He is trained, and he is continually training. Um, he, he's letting us know that this is this man's lifestyle. This is a good leader's lifestyle. And the word trained there has two different meanings, and I loved both of them. The first means ever nourishing your own self, and the second means keeping yourself spiritually fit. And both of those show you it's not a single event that happens in the past. It's something that is an ongoing reality in a leader's life. It's an ongoing process of being trained. And I thought, you know, if we put this in, in fitness kind of words, we would never say, oh, I'm so physically fit. I'm never exercising again. That just won't work, will it? We know that if you wanna be physically fit, it's a continual process, it's an ongoing reality. And I also love that this doesn't suggest, oh, I can get someone else to get fit and healthy for me. I can contract that out, I can hire someone. Because it says you're nourishing yourself, you're keeping yourself physically fit. So he's telling you the internal life of this leader is someone who is motivated to continually train themselves. They're never done until the day Jesus receives them in heaven. Um, so it's an ongoing lifestyle. And what is this person training in? They're training in the words of the faith and the good doctrine. Or some translations might call that the scripture and the teaching of the apostles. And you know, I think we always have to remember they didn't have all of this like we did, like we do today. Um, they may have had a, a print version of the Old Testament. Most likely they didn't have those in their homes, but they, they knew the Old Testament that was read in the synagogues and they knew the story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and they may have had a few of these letters from the apostles that had circulated through their churches, but maybe not. Some of them hadn't even been written yet. So what he's telling him is you have to continually train yourself in the scriptures and in the teaching of the apostles. 
And it's really interesting. Paul will use this uh, expression from time to time. He'll say, this is a trustworthy saying. This is worthy of acceptance. And I think what he's communicating here, the teaching of the apostles has authority. They had already accepted the authority of the Old Testament, and he's telling them now this idea of doctrine, true teaching that comes from the apostles, it has authority. We accept that today because the authority's been proven, and that's why all these letters have been combined in our Bibles that we have, but they didn't have that yet. So he's telling them, train yourself in both the scriptures and the teachings of the apostles. And what he's also saying there is don't bother with silly myths, don't bother with genealogies, don't bother with unexplained stories and fictions and wives' tales. He doesn't need his good servant to be trained in those things. He needs his good servant to be trained in the truth. And the same is true for us, and we have the whole truth put together. I was reminded of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So he's telling us that the desire of your heart needs to be continually training in the truth and in the scriptures. And doing that will produce godliness in your life. And ladies, all through these letters to Timothy, we're gonna see this theme of godliness. And so we need to stop and pay attention to that. He does go on to say there's a little, there, there is some value that comes from physical disciplines, and the physical disciplines I think he's referring to are things like fasting or abstaining um, as a spiritual process. Um, he's saying there are some temporary benefit that comes to those, but those practices don't save you. They don't save you and they can easily be used inappropriately. He says the practices are not laws. They don't earn your salvation. They don't make you a better Christian. They don't move you up the ladder of spiritual purity like some are saying. And he reminds Timothy that even though those those, um, spiritual disciplines might have some temporal immediate value right then, godliness is more valuable. Godliness is valuable for today and for the life to come. He's saying pursuing godliness and demonstrating it in your life, that has value forever, value that will never be burned up or destroyed or will never have an end to it. Now, he doesn't specifically tell us what the value is here, but if you just stop and think about that, we know that pursuing godliness, we know all through the Bible, God says there are blessings for obedience. There are blessings that come into our life when we pursue godliness. And we know that some of the blessings are right relationships with, with each other, right relationship with God, a good, clear conscience, um, a growing ability to discern truth from error. Those are blessings that we can experience immediately in our life. And Paul is saying, and there's more. There's blessing in the life to come. And you know, we don't fully see that life yet, so we don't know exactly what those blessings will be. But I think the emphasis that we need to focus on here is there are eternal realities connected to how we live right now. The way we live matters. It matters for today and it matters in eternity. And I think as followers of Jesus, we have to remember there will be a day when we stand before our Lord and we give an accounting for every word that we said, every action that we took, every hidden motive of our heart. And there will be blessings if those things reflect godliness. 
Um, then he, he goes on and he says, I want you to toil and strive. And if you just look at those words, you think, boy, those words are really suggesting this ongoing outpouring of energy in our lives. Um, and he says, you can toil and strive because of the source of your hope, because your hope is set on the living God. And remember, this passage is talking about the inner person. Um, he's talking about who you are and your character. And so he's saying, if your hope is set on God, you can live this life pursuing godliness. You can toil and strive. You can't do it if your hope is set on yourself. You can't do it if your hope is set on accomplishing your own salvation, earning your own spiritual um, maturity or spiritual growth here. He's saying it only works if your hope is set on God. And you can put your hope firmly on God because you know God hopes the very best for you. God has the highest hope for you. 1 Timothy 2.4 says God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So he's saying the real leader, the real servant of the church in his inner life, his hope is set on God and nothing else. Then he goes on and he describes a little bit of what that servant or leader does within the church. So he's moving from his inner life to his outward behavior. So let's read about that. We'll uh, pick this up in verse 11. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your good progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So as he talks about what the leader is supposed to do, he begins with very strong words, command, teach, insist on these things, authoritative words, and then he immediately addresses a perceived weakness in Timothy, his youth. Youth, now this is interesting to me. I, I hear youth and I tend to think of um, maybe a 19, a 20, a 21 year old, but I've learned youth is a subjective term. Um, at the time this was written, youth meant anyone under 40. So half of the room, you can rejoice right now because you are still a youth. And the other half, I'm sorry, but come on, you knew you weren't youthful anyway, and I'm right there with you. So Timothy was not 19, 20, 21. Timothy was probably between 30 and 35. And at that time, that was considered awfully young to be a leader, particularly a spiritual leader. Paul's saying here, don't let your age be a detractor. Let the integrity of your life be an attractor. Um, he's saying this pursuit of godliness that begins in your heart and in who you are, it should spill out into your life and it spills out with good speech, good behavior, healthy relationships, a faith that is unwavering and steadfast and a heart that is pure and moral and upright. He's saying the inward life and all the outward behavior needs to be integrated. He says, let your inner life of godliness be visible, let it be a demonstration, let it be a testimony that Jesus does save sinners. 
So that's the first thing he says. Now you may remember in chapter three when we talked about the qualifications for elders and deacons, we really heard a similar instruction. Paul said they should not be a recent convert, let them be tested first. And I think this is the same thing. I think he's saying integrity in their life needs to be displayed for a period of time before they're given a public opportunity to lead and teach and serve. So someone who is young in their faith is certainly not discredited, but they need some time. They need weeks and months and years to display what's going on in their heart to display it in their behavior. It gives authority and proof and credibility to the message that they're proclaiming. You know, I once knew someone who taught themselves how to play golf by reading a book. They never held a golf club and they never set foot on a golf course. So you can imagine, as golfers gathered together, they could engage in dialogue and they knew all the right words to use. But as soon as someone said, what's your handicap or where do you play? They lost all credibility. You have to play the game to have credibility, and that's exactly what he's describing here. He says, Timothy, be in the game. Let it show in your good behavior, and that will give authority to your teaching. It will attract to your teaching instead of detracting from it. The next thing he says the good servant needs to do is he needs to teach the scriptures. And I love that it doesn't say he needs to study and teach the myths and the genealogies and the errors. He doesn't. He says teach the scriptures. And you remember it was the custom in the Jewish synagogue that the leader would stand and they would read from the scrolls most likely because people didn't have those scrolls in their home. And so what's happening is here, we're just transferring that Old Testament practice to the New Testament church. Publicly read the scriptures, read them out loud. And then he uses the word exhort. And this is a further explanation on, on what it is to stand up and read the scriptures. Don't just read them, but teach people the explanation and teach people the application. Or as we say here at Christ Chapel, the Monday morning relevance. Teach them what to do with their life based on what the scriptures say. So he says, publicly read and exhort. And then it goes on and it says, devote yourself to teaching. That might sound redundant, but it's a different word there and it means something different. Your translation might say, devote yourself to doctrine. Um, the word used there suggests a systematic teaching in view of the whole thing. So what he's talking about there is teach the major themes, teach the major ideas of the entirety of scripture, not just one piece of it. And so I think you can understand in your own spiritual growth, learning just one part of the Bible, while that is helpful, it's certainly not as complete or full or rich as when you understand that piece in light of the whole of the scripture. So he's saying the good servant, the good leader, the good teacher, they're gonna teach out loud, they're going to explain it, help people understand how to apply it to their lives, and they're gonna teach it in the context of all of God's truth. That's who a leader in the church is. So I want us to stop for a minute and, and put this in our context, in our day, and consider why teaching just the scriptures is so important. Um, we, we can easily see here in the real church in Ephesus that people were being led astray and it was lies that were leading them. And we know that the one thing that will counter a lie is the truth. So that's why it's important for us to study the truth, study the scriptures as God has given them to us. 
When I was a little girl, we had a family friend who was a member of the Secret Service, and he would come to our house and tell the most exciting stories about traveling with the presidents and protecting them, and he'd tell us all kinds of other things about criminal behavior. And I remember one night he came, and with all the kids, he pulled out a crisp $1 bill, and he handed it around, and he asked each of us to look carefully at it, to study it. And we did, and then he took it back, and he said, okay, you've all studied it, right? Yes. And he said, who wants it? We all wanted it. It was a dollar bill. And then he looked at us and he said, why do you want it? It's worthless. That's a counterfeit dollar bill. And we were shocked because we'd studied it so hard. We thought it looked real. Now, you've probably heard this before, but we were kids. We had never heard it before. He said the best way to spot a counterfeit is not to study counterfeits. It's to study the original. You study the original, you immerse yourself in it, you know it backwards and forwards, and then as soon as you see something different, you recognize it immediately as false. That's how it works in the world of counterfeit currency. That's also how it works in the art world. You know, the, the art authenticators, they don't study the copies. They study the masters. They study everything about their brushstroke, their use of color. They study the original masterpiece so that they can recognize a copy. They can recognize something that is false. It's plainly visible. And I think the same is true for us. We study the scriptures. We study the truth that God has given us so we can recognize false teaching and lies. And ladies, I think it's really important. We study the whole of the scriptures because we know people can pull out one verse and they can distort it and they can use it out of context to move us to a different position. And that's manipulation and that's wrong and that's false teaching. I think we have to remember we, like the people in Ephesians, live during later times. There were false teachers then. There are false teachers now. There will continue to be false teachers until Jesus comes back and the truth is what will protect us from being deceived by their lies. That's the only thing that can protect us. I also think it's important that we can't be dependent on our pastor or our teacher to know the truth for us. Because if we wanna live with that kind of dependence, we can never turn on our computers or our TVs or our radios or go to bookstores because those lies are out there everywhere. That's why it's so important for us, just like the good leader in the church, to be ever nourishing, ever teaching and training ourselves. The next thing we see a good leader in the church doing, they use their spiritual gift. You know, if you were with us when we studied Ephesians, we talked about spiritual gifts. It's a divine enabling. It's a divine ability that God gives you when you first put your faith in Jesus and are welcomed into the church and the household of God. And the gifts are varied. We don't all have the same gift, but we're all given the same instruction. We're to use the gift that we have, and Timothy has a gift here. Listen to what's said in 1 Peter 4.10. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Timothy has a gift, and, and the elders have, have confirmed that he has this gift, and he's been encouraged to both steward the gift and use it. 
And it's nothing for him to be proud of. No one should be proud of their spiritual gift. It's kind of like being born with blue eyes. You didn't do anything to get those blue eyes. God just gave them to you. A spiritual gift is the same way, but we're to use those gifts to accomplish God's purpose. And Timothy's gift was to accomplish the purpose of teaching and training the saints in the church. It was to benefit the church. So if Timothy has been feeling insecure or timid or perhaps too young or too inexperienced, this truth should take care of his fears. Paul is saying, God has gifted you and enabled you to do this and he's placed you at this time. And now Paul has given him these instructions in how he's to do it. And in case he's confused, Paul says, practice them, repeat them, immerse yourself in them. This should be your life. That would be the life of Timothy as a good leader in the church. And if Timothy does, does those things, Paul says, all will see your progress. There will be evidence, there will be a visible reality in your life that Jesus changes sinners. A visible reality, that's what he's going for. And, and so again, we see the, the importance of an example, an example to follow. So the teacher will never stop learning, never stop pursuing godliness, never stop studying the scriptures, never stop using their gift. And when they do all those things, their life will be a visible reality. Paul's talking about the life of the teacher or the leader here, but I think there's something for all of us to understand about our, our life together in the church. If every single member is following this example, pursuing godliness, uh, continuing to know the scriptures, using our gifts, then all of us together, we are a visible reality to the world. We're like a pillar holding up the truth that God saves sinners. We are the example. That's how we fulfill our role as the church. Um, he goes on here and he sums up these instructions with a bit of a warning. He says, keep a close watch on yourself. That means your inner life, your inner character, and keep a close watch on your teaching. That's your behavior. That's how you're leading, what you're doing within um, the community of Christians. And he says, this is very critical for a good servant and a teacher. And so we wanna stop and say, why is it important for a leader, for a teacher to keep close watch on themselves and on their teaching? And obviously the, the teacher, the leader, is, is uh, continually studying and trying to grow in godliness. But the truth is, the teacher will never be like God. The teacher will always be a fallen human being with a sin nature. The teacher will always have physical, emotional, spiritual weaknesses. The teacher will always have flaws. And so Paul says, you need to stay humble here. You need to know you'll never be like God and you need to always be watching. Always be checking your teaching to make sure both who you are and what you're doing is not leading people astray. You know, I think I can use my own self as an example here. Um, obviously, I am a teacher, and I am uh, continuing every day to study the scriptures and know God better, uh, and I'm pursuing godliness. But let me tell you, within a couple minutes of my waking every single morning, I am reminded I am a sinner. I fall short, <laughs> I let God down. And if you don't believe me, I can bring my three sons up here and they could give you examples of times when they were convinced I was demon possessed. 
and that's just the truth. And something happened yesterday at my house that I'll, I'll, just, I'll just share with you. My oldest son was talking to me about something and, and he was using the, this term hospitality anxiety. Now that's, that's a made up term, don't go look it up. And I stopped him and I said, I don't, I don't, is that real? What are you talking about? And without skipping a beat, he said, mom, think about how stressed you get when company is coming over. And in the last minute, you get so mean and awful to all of us. That's hospitality anxiety. I'm just keeping it real for all of y'all. And the sad thing that breaks my heart, that's an ongoing reality in my life too. Um, so the teacher is gonna keep teaching and keep using their gift. The leader's gonna keep striving, but they're never gonna be like God and they're gonna have to stay humble. And I think we're gonna have to demonstrate grace with them. And I think a huge um, thought for us in that, considering that reality is that's why we don't put our hope in the teacher. That's why we don't put our hope in the pastor or the leader because they're a flawed human being. We put our hope in God alone. So the teacher will persist in all these things. And Paul says, in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now that line right there is a good reason why we need to know the whole of the scriptures because that one line could easily be misunderstood. Um, the whole of the scriptures make it very clear. Salvation comes to us as a gift from God through the work of Jesus Christ. We don't earn it. We don't save ourselves and we don't save other people. Ephesians 2 verse eight says, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, so no man may boast. So what in the world does Paul mean here? You can save yourself and save your hearers. Well, we have to look at the whole passage. We have to remember how it began. It began with bad leaders causing people to depart from the faith, to step away from the faith, um, causing people not to fulfill their role within the church of God. That was the fruit produced by bad leaders, and Paul is showing us the opposite here. He's showing us persisting in these things, Timothy, being this person and doing these good things will help save yourself from spiritual failure, from a wasted life, from squandering your spiritual gift. It'll save you from falling away from the faith, and it will also save your hearers from teaching that could mislead them, from error, from regression. Because we know that God saves. He's the one who saves, but he uses people to expose errors, and he uses people to proclaim truth. And when leaders do that, as they're supposed to do, there's a good outcome. Um, they produce protection. God's people are protected, God's truth is protected, and God's church is protected. When the church is pr protected, then we fulfill our purpose of being that pillar that's holding up the truth of the gospel. We're holding up the reality of all these people are sinners who've been saved, and their lives are testimony to that truth. So we get this real picture, the real story of, of the church here, and it's consistent for us today. The sad truth is Christians don't always remain faithful to the Lord. Some wander in their beliefs, 
Some wander in their behavior. Some wander away from the truth. And some will actually lead others with them. And uh, good leadership is God's plan to thwart this false teaching in the church. So if Paul is teaching to a young pastor here, what can we as non-pastors learn? And I think it's pretty clear. Uh, We can see quite clearly we are to follow the good leaders. Follow the good leaders. Because here's the truth. No one makes themselves a leader. You make them a leader. You make them a leader when you get behind them. When you buy their books, when you read their blogs, when you share them and repost them, and when you teach them to other people, you make them a leader when you follow them. So you have a responsibility to follow the good servant leader. Do they look like this? Do they teach the truth? And how are you going to know that unless you are continually training yourself in the truth also? You have a responsibility to get behind a good leader and to know how to identify the counterfeit leaders. I think the other thing we can learn from this is we need to follow the good example. You know, he has given us a great example here. He's told Timothy how to live, and he said, live this way as an example, meaning so that everyone can follow it. We need to be people pursuing godliness, continually training ourselves in the scriptures, displaying integrity in all areas of our lives, using our spiritual gift, letting our hope rest on God, not on ourselves, not on our own progress and our own work. Um, And even though we're not pastors, we have a life of ministry that we can each immerse ourselves into. We have ministry in our neighborhoods, in our homes, with our families, in our work. Um, We can make our whole life a ministry just the same way a pastor can. I think the third thing we really have to take away from this, we have to remember the real truth, the hard and ugly truth. There are two kingdoms and they are at war. That is a reality for all of us. And so if you look at just the instructions that Paul gives Timothy here, I I jotted these down on a piece of paper. Be trained, train yourself, toil, strive, set an example, devote yourself to this, use your gift, practice these things, immerse yourself in these things, keep, watch, persist. When I look at those words together, I think they are warrior words, aren't they? They're words for a warrior, and they're not just for pastors. They're for anyone who wants to be a good servant of Jesus. They're for anyone who wants to help uphold the truth of the gospel. So we aren't all called to be pastors, and we aren't necessarily called to be leaders, but we are all called. And we have three possible responses when God calls us. The first is we can reject the truth and the call and we can walk away completely. The second, we can embrace the truth of the gospel, but we can never fully pursue godliness and integrity, maybe never be very helpful at holding up the truth of the gospel with our life. That's an option and God calls it lukewarm. The third option is we can follow the good example. We can immerse ourselves every day in knowing God and following God and allowing God to redeem the flawed and broken parts of our lives so that we are participating with God's big plan to bring redemption to the whole world through his son. There are two kingdoms at war. That's the real story. 
But I want you to remember today there is only one true king. And our king says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I wanna be a part of that. I hope you do too. Let's pray. God, you're a good God and you are our true king. So we thank you for the privilege of knowing the king and we thank you for the privilege of being in your family, this church. And I just pray for each one of us today, Lord. I pray that you would strengthen us in our inner man so that our faith could be so strong and so firm that we would uh, live in a way that our life is a testimony to the truth of the gospel, that we would display that truth every day, everywhere we go, Lord, and that that would both bring you glory and that that would attract people into your church and into your family because we know that is your good hope and desire for all of us. Lord, that's a, a big, big request, but you are a big God, so we ask for your help with that, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.